You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio. You're really lucky, you know that? Are you kidding? It was over in a second. I didn't have to be afraid of it. I didn't even have to think about it. No more bullshit. No more responsibility. No more having to care. No more boredom! No more waiting to die. <laughs> From WALTFM, you're listening to Fisher Family Ghosts, a companion podcast to the HBO series Six Feet Under. I'm Sam Dingman. It has been 20 years since Six Feet Under was released on HBO. And for me, as I'm sure it is for many of you, Six Feet Under is a work of art that changed my entire life. This show is called Fisher Family Ghosts, in part because I am the host and producer of another podcast called Family Ghosts, where we tell stories about people from our family's histories whose legacies reverberate, for better or worse, to this day. And a huge part of the inspiration for that show, which tells nonfiction stories, is the fictional Fisher family. Who, from the moment I started watching Six Feet Under, felt extraordinarily familiar. And so, in light of the 20-year anniversary of Six Feet Under, and the fact that it looks like we're all going to be stuck inside for another few months, I thought it might be a good time to reconsider the show, which I haven't watched in years, and then to talk about how it holds up and whether it still makes me feel the same things it used to. And I'm going to be doing this project with my girlfriend, Adrian, who has never seen the show and to whom I have been raving about it ever since we met. Okay, so, Adrian Bain, we are about to watch Six Feet Under. Mm-hmm. I would like us to talk a little bit about how we're feeling as we begin that process. Oh my God, even your feelings. If you're nervous about feelings, you're going to hate this show. (laughs) (laughs) So what are your thoughts about Six Feet Under as we enter this? Besides the fact that I was like, babe, you have to do this with me. Yeah. Other than like coerced and you lowered my rent by like 50 bucks. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, that's cool. All right, fine. Um, I know that it has a lot to do with death, lots of family drama. It inspired you for family ghosts, and I know nothing about family drama. Um, so I don't really see how this is going to be relatable to me at all. So Predicting before we go in that your favorite character is going to be Claire okay. because she's super sarcastic. <laughs> why, would it, why would that be my favorite? And <laughs> she illustrates it expertly. Okay. I think the main thing that I want to express for me is that Six Feet Under was the first TV show that I watched that wasn't a baseball game. How old are you? I was 22. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I started watching it because I decided when I was home from college after I had graduated and had my first... Wait, you went through college without watching television? Without like watching TV? Adrian, if you wanted to watch TV when I was in college, you had to 
write down on a slip of notebook paper Mm -hmm. the time that you wanted to use the TV in the common room (gasps) and call dibs, basically. You had to tape it to the screen. It was an honor system. So some... You had just assumed that somebody else wasn't going to come along and rip that taped piece of paper off the screen and replace it with their own. Oh, my God. And then I guess the other thing that I want to say is when I first started watching the show, I had just gotten my first job that where the job was the main thing I was doing. I was a host at a restaurant at a hotel and I had to wear a suit. Mm -hmm. So I would go in at like five Mm o'clock and I would stand there and nobody would come to the restaurant because it was a hotel restaurant. So I would just sit and those places were happening. There may be other ones that were. <laughs> this one, it was called Seagars, S-E-A-G-A-R-S, because they specialized in seafood and cigars. That's so bad. So I would come home and I would take off my very cheap suit coat mm-hmm. and, so sexy. Keep talking. and I would loosen my tie what? and I would make myself a tuna sandwich. What? And I would open a Corona. Oh my God, I can smell it. I love it. Yes, get it. And I was not the response I was expecting. <laughs> and I, why didn't we meet when I was 22? And um, <laughs> there are, it's really good. We didn't meet when you were 22 because I was. We don't have to. So much I'm younger. Gonna, I'm going to edit this out. I was 16. Well. Oh my God, yeah, you didn't want to meet me then anyways. So. <laughs> <laughs> so I would make this, you know, nonsense bachelor plate for myself. Mm-hmm. And I would go sit in the TV room and I was living at home by myself. And I thought to myself, one of the first nights I was there like this, oh, I'll just watch Six Feet Under. This is in Virginia. Okay. In Virginia. Okay. And at this point, I did not really have a plan for what I was going to do after college. Mm. And Six Feet Under, as you are about to see, the jumping off point of the story is that two of the members of the Fisher family in particular are suddenly confronted with this realization that they have to make a decision right now about what they're going to do with the rest of their lives. Mm. And they realize that they've never given that any serious thought. Mm. And that is very much the place that I was in. And it was cathartic. Mm. Okay, let's watch it. Cool, let's do it. All right. At this juncture, as you can probably guess, Adrian and I turned on the pilot episode of Six Feet Under. I'm guessing most of you have seen it already, but if you haven't, or if you're joining us for this rewatch, hit pause on this podcast and watch it, and then join us for a discussion in the second half of Fisher Family Ghosts. Nate, can we go home? I really got to take a shower. Oh, God, Jesus Christ. Am I not allowed to have even a single moment to myself? Okay. It's okay. What can I do? Nothing. No one can do anything. I have all of the feelings. Tell me about the feelings. Oh, my God. That was exhausting. (laughs) I feel like also because, like, we're just coming out of Thanksgiving, and my family Thanksgiving is pretty drama-free, but this year was a fucking catastrophe for reasons that we don't... Not that bad, but, like, bad. Some things that needed to be talked about 
for a long time were finally addressed. And death happened. So I feel very like, and within, since October, like four people that have been in my stratosphere have passed and, and or animals, which was family members, family members. So that all feels very prevalent. Well, can I ask you something about that? Because I was actually thinking about that while we were watching this. Mm -hmm. And something that I had forgotten about this episode is how much from the very beginning, the dynamic is established that Nate is the one who feels the feelings. I know. And people can tell that Nate feels the feelings and he can't help the fact that he's a natural empath. And even in that, there's a scene in the grocery store where he says to Claire, can't I just have one second to myself? And then he sees that she's upset and he instantly switches into like, what can I do? That's true. And that made me think about you. Oh. Because as you have navigated all of this loss this last month, something that I really admire about you is you have not tried to pretend that you're okay when you're not okay. Mm. And you have just let it... I literally have no idea how to do that. ...come out. Yeah. I've been a nightmare. You can just say it. (laughs) No. (laughs) No, I mean, when we were at Thanksgiving with your family, your sister needed to talk about what was happening. And in my memory, she walked into our room literally in the middle of a sentence, knowing that you... We're gonna be there to listen and and hold it. That's true. And that it would be it would be better if she just talked to you about it. That's true. I think what I used to be is I used to like get very swept up in my feelings, and now I know I know how to handle them. And this show is people who like don't know how to handle them. I think that Nate and David are such good foils for each other. They're both waking up right now. And I see what you mean where it's like two characters have to make some life-changing decision right now. Right away. Right away. And I want to say, and you're going to make fun of me for this, justifiably. I mean, you would anyway, but it's definitely justified in this case. The main thing I remember that changed in my life immediately after I saw this episode is I started dressing like... Nate. Instantly. I remember telling myself, <laughs> I'm going to not shave as much. Ooh, but I do love when you have five o'clock shower. I- <laughs> oh, wait, shadow. I said five o'clock shower. You're like, I love when you love when- are so lazy all day and just yeah. take a shower at the end of the day. Um, it just like does something for me. But I started I look, I'm looking for jeans like he wore. This comes up more later in the in the series, but he wears Oxford sh- or like button down shirts untucked with the sleeves three quarter rolled. I started wearing a bracelet Ugh. and yes. a loose leather jacket. Why don't you dress like that anymore? <laughs> uh, well, partially because I think what happened is I am in my life now says the person who hosts a show about helping people confront their families, demons, and feel feelings that haven't been felt for a long time. Mm-hmm. I would like to think of myself as somebody who has reached a place where I have embraced the fact that of all the characters I feel most 
similar to Nate in terms of walking through the world with a sense of empathy. Mm-hmm. But I had a lot of David that I needed to work through really, in order to get to that point. And all I could clock when I first watched this was, well, maybe I'll just dress like Nate to start. <laughs> I've had those like irrational thoughts too. Like when I, when my mom told me that part of getting your period was like, oh, you're going to be kind of like cranky and mean sometimes. I was like, okay, so I'll just start being nicer to my sister. <laughs> like, like there's sometimes when you're young enough, you're just like, but you know that something has to change and you're just trying to find like, what is the one thing within my control, which are very David tendencies. Yeah. There's so much. I think all of these characters are very, they're not 2D. I think we're going to see them become very 3D and I'm very excited about that. But all of the chaotic pieces that humans can be are here and they're all clashing with each other. Mm. And where in a comedy show that would bring lots of laughter in this, it evokes a lot of like, I just kind of kept thinking about my family. Well, one of the things that I, I love about it and that I also don't think I had the language or emotional intelligence to clock when I first watched it is it's funny in inappropriate moments, the way that family yes. is funny in inappropriate moments. Totally. They're awkward in their expression of emotion. Like the, the scene at the casket where they're lowering the father's coffin into the earth mm-hmm. And the mom finally has her breakdown and there's like snot coming off her nose. I loved that detail. And they just hold the camera on her. Yep. They don't pull away. Yep. They let it be as uncomfortable as it really is. Yeah. And. It's real. And I think that's why it has that effect of making, making us think about family when we watch it. I remember watching it for the first time in my family's house that I was living in for the first time since I had graduated college. And I still had some time to go before I reached a point where I wanted to go track down family ghosts, including my own family's ghosts. But I think watching this was a huge catalyst for wanting to tell those kinds of stories because it made it feel so relatable to have those moments that are awkward and uncomfortable with family and have that pang of this is so fucked up and we're just not talking about it and i couldn't and can't think of anything else any other drama uh, whether on a stage or on a screen i had ever seen that just like stuck its thumbs so deep in that right out of the gate can i ask you a personal question sure was your father still living in the house when you came back? No. It was the first time I had spent extended time at home when he didn't live there anymore. Yeah. And yeah. I was watching the show in the room where I used to spend the most time with him, Oof. which was the room where we would watch baseball, the TV room. And it was just me now. Does and he used to come home from work, uh-huh. loosen the tie of his suit, have a tuna sandwich and a Corona <laughs> and watch baseball. And I would stare at him and I'd be like, that's what it, that's, that's what it means to be a dad. Mm. So you came back from your job and you made yourself a tuna sandwich. 
loosened my tie, loosened your tie, opened a Corona, and watched a show that made me question everything about my relationship with him. <laughs> Damon, you can't write that. Like that's. This is why. I want to do this project with you, Adrian, because <laughs> as you saw while we were watching this, I was scribbling notes oh, in yeah. my little book. I know. And I was drawing lewd images of naked women every <laughs> intermittently when there were gory parts, which I was not prepared for. And I demanded extra hundred dollar reduction on my rent. <laughs> oh, yeah. I definitely didn't tell you about all the Ugh. blood and gut stuff. Ugh, I hate it. Which dear reader, Adrian despises. Ugh. Um. Dear Reader, are they reading this right now? I just feel like Dear Reader is dear more listener. common lexicon than Dear Listener. Should no. I say Dear Listener? You are misnaming the audience. This is the other reason I wanted to do this project with you, Adrian, is to be relentlessly shamed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to tell you that all your decisions are wrong. That's all. I know. Okay. One other thing mm-hmm. that I wanted to point out that you said that I would like to think I would have gotten it now mm-hmm. as a person who... like has a film studies minor from college and has been doing professional storytelling for a long time. Yeah. But I know I missed it then and I missed it this time. Uh-huh. When Nate goes running through the cemetery. Oh my God, give me a break. You said like that. that's, that's a little bit much. on the nose. That's a little too much. Because he's been running away from this his whole life. He comes back. His exactly. father's just died. He goes for a jog. He runs through a cemetery. Exactly. I kind of felt this was one thing that I would critique this episode on is like, Every pivot away from the house, the characters are are always reminded of death somehow or their father's death somehow. So, like, I guess Nate does – I guess it's really only Nate. So, running through the cemetery and then when he has this weird hallucination of seeing his dad get on the bus, there was some type of ad about, like, sleeping, like, your your best rest. A good night's sleep. A good night's sleep. I will say I I took that moment at the end where he's standing on the street and everybody's walking by and making meaningful eye contact with him as the vision of his father recedes on the bus. The thing we saw just before that is his mom asking him to stay for a few extra days, which you accurately predicted is going to turn into a few extra seasons yeah. of a TV show. She's like, just stay a few days. Yeah. Six seasons later. <laughs> he like, don't fall for that. Does not return to the food co-op. Yeah. Um, But I think there is, from a story structure standpoint, there's a really interesting thing happening there, which is the episode begins with the patriarch dying. Yeah. And his legacy is emotionally handed off to his oldest son mm-hmm. in the last frame. Mm. And... Because it also kind of looks like the son is kind of standing in a similar spot where the dad was hit. Yeah. On a bus route. Right. A bus a bus literally took him away at the beginning of the show, and now it is figuratively yeah. taking him away. Yeah. Yeah. You're rolling your eyes. <laughs> uh, but that's, I think that's just like, that's a little heavy handed. You know, like that's a little. Sure. That's a little much. Because I, I think that that takes away like. The cathartic honesty and emotional honesty of what they're feeling. But also the show is a little jokey. So I'm a little like, what are you about right now? I'm going to defend it, acknowledging that it is on the nose. But I'm going to defend it a little bit because at the time that this show was airing, nobody had ever really tried 
anything like this on TV before, I don't think. I could be speaking well out of turn, and perhaps later in the run of this, we'll interview somebody who can disabuse me of that misguided notion. But this was the first big swing episodic dramedy that HBO tried after The Sopranos. Mm. And The Sopranos was super violent um, and kind of traded on these mobster stereotypes to get people to watch a show that was actually a really interesting psychological drama. Mm -hmm. And... So in this one, they don't have the inherent appeal of a mob story. They just have to go with families and psychology and betrayal and existential crises, huh? And they just kind of let you sit in it. I mean, in a way, us having to sit in the cheesiness of that moment is kind of like having to sit with the awkwardness of family. Mm. Am I reaching? I might be reaching a little bit to defend a thing I love. No, I think that's a cute idea. <laughs> um, but I don't feel like my intelligence is being insulted. Okay. Also, it's the first episode. And you also have to remember, this is written and directed by the same person who gave us American Beauty, which mm. had similar moments of transcendence and connection right. and made us feel things we had never felt before, but also had the infamous plastic grocery bag in the breeze scene that everybody makes fun of now for being too heavy-handed i think i watched that when i was really young and i always kind of love i still love it that scene because sometimes it is just like really living in new york city on a six-story you know the six story of a building like we see that shit all the time and it's like kind of it's sad and beautiful at the same time so i get it Sad and beautiful at the same time. Which is what this is, you know? Exactly. There's got to be some, like, check word for that. You know, it's like, this is sad and beautiful. (laughs) Only they would have, like, a real term for it. Yeah. Can I say one more thing about that Nate moment? Mm Mm-hmm. I like that there's all these little ways that that realization for him is foreshadowed. I think that's, like, inevitable. It feels inevitable, but I don't... It didn't feel forced to me. And, And interestingly, I think Brenda is trying to psychoanalyze him Ugh, Brenda, the I entire like... time. Mm-hmm. And there are some parts of him that she seems to get right. She kind of like pegs him as a him driftless fuckboy. Beauty, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not working out so much for him anymore. Yeah. But the thing that his family clocks and latches onto instantly that I don't think she has figured out yet, even with all of her supposed psychological fluency mm-hmm. is his inherent empath way yeah totally that it takes his family to see that makes total sense because they fucked in an airport closet <laughs> and then had two rando conversations and she just like pops about it she does not know this person right. you know like and in a way she's doing what everybody else in the show is doing which is like trying to escape her problems exactly by leaning on him exactly and she just is like trying to figure him out i think in the beginning she was feeling him out but still putting up walls and being like i am a strong person we also did clock one script error where they had been talking to each other on cell phones and then at the very end of the funeral she's like oh here's my number it's like you guys have been talking on cell phones this right she called him both time all of the times but also does his phone not save numbers like 
I know this was 20 years ago, but no, I cell phones that... still worked the same way then. Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask you about two more things. One, you had strong feelings to the David and Keith relationship. I remember feeling when I watched this like I had never seen male desire yeah. portrayed. Like I think in this, David's homosexuality is portrayed as part of his personality. It's mm-hmm. part of the whole, it's not the whole story. Mm-hmm. Yes, his a big part of his journey in this episode is, is he going to reveal to his family who Keith is? Mm-hmm. But that's just a part of the whole. We also know that he feels a lot of pressure to take over the family business, knows He's this is a big neurotic. test from him. He's super neurotic, all these things. Doesn't like swearing, but like Loki does. And so when we see his homosexuality, we see it come out organically the way desire between two people comes out. Right regardless of their sexuality. And for me, it was the first time I had ever seen homosexuality depicted that way Mm -hmm. in a story. And it was pretty revelatory. I think one reason I had such a versatile... first Wait, no, sorry. Um, (laughs) I had a very versatile response to it. I felt so many feelings so well. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. I'm fluent in all feelings. But I think I had such a visceral reaction to it because it's the first time we kind of see a softer side of him or like we know Mm. that there's a softer side of him. He is a lobster, right? He's just like completely, (laughs) he has shelled off any and all of his emotions. He thinks he has to be the strong one. I love when Keith is like, I think this line was a little heavy handed, but I was like, yes, thank you, Keith. When he was like, don't you get tired of being so hard on other people and hard on yourself? Mm -hmm. And I was like, Keith, Really bad timing, but, like, great point, you know? (laughs) Um, What was relieving was that nowhere in David's life is he able to breathe. And at the very end, Keith is someone who he goes to and just starts, like, weeping, you know? He literally cries on his shoulder. Exactly. Which is what Keith has been asking him to do. love that, especially because it seems as though his dad probably wasn't, like, Toxic masculinity, but like upheld a certain level of masculinity. I really enjoy when masculinity is, I don't know, deconstructed. And I just like it when humans can just be feeling humans. And it's like, it doesn't matter what our sex, gender, whatever is, but our gender roles do put boundaries around the feelings that we're allowed to feel. So I really loved for 2001... I think for the time that was probably pretty edgy. And not only that, they are a biracial couple. And like. Mm -hmm. And Keith's a cop. And Keith's a cop. Like what? There is so much to this right now. That's insane. Yeah, it was big. I just loved that vulnerability. And I think that David especially has like really put himself in a cage. And Keith has jiggled the, the lock. Yeah. That's so, that's a beautiful way of putting it. And I love that we see that Claire sees that they're like together and she's like, mm, that's cute, you know, because mm-hmm. I love that she was like, that cop is fucking hot. And mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, girl. <laughs> also, speaking of Claire, I when it was her and Nate speaking on the couch together, I so felt my youngest sister mm. because she and I are of a significant age difference, but like can chill mm-hmm. really well, really regularly together. Mm-hmm. And 
recognize that our age difference gives us like very different perspectives on our family dynamic. And like I left, fucking did the dumb vagabonding around the world. And she was left at home to kind of like clean up this mess. I think in that moment I saw like, oh, is there something about the oldest and the youngest a little bit? Well, I feel like in your family, I have seen you and Jess fight the hardest and chill the hardest. Mm, and that's true. That's exactly what we see in this. You know, the first thing that happens is it's like a similarity thing. Yeah. We're both Pisces, too. So. Nate and Jess are, are <laughs> whoops. <laughs> Sorry, Jess. Um, Nate and Claire are at each other's throats in the hospital yeah. because Claire tries to do what everybody else does and put all of her stuff on Nate. And he's like, I can't handle this right now. Of course, he later comes around and says, like, Claire, how can I help you? Um, I can't have you being on drugs right now. Um, And then in that moment on the couch, they are so with each other. I know. I also love that Claire, I am sad how that moment played out. The like, I'm fucking high in crystal mouth because I, that definitely would have been a lot if that was happening to me in that moment, which I don't want to think about. And Jess was like, (laughs) I on meth, which honestly (laughs) I can't imagine her personality being bigger. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, this is for the listeners. This is for you. Um, I just feel like you don't know anything about my family after you've basically. Lived well, for, if you would introduce 14. me to them and stop calling me your racquetball partner, can we not talk about this right now? No, I think this is the correct venue. <laughs> okay, I just want to say this isn't a podcast. I'm just going to email this file to your family. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to say. I'm extremely grateful that my family is very messy, but we all really do love each other. Like my parents are divorced and can chill in the same room together. Mm-hmm. That's bananas to other people. Yeah. Can I ask you a personal question mm-hmm. along the lines of the ones you the one you asked me? Yeah. You mentioned in your answer about David and Keith that unpacking masculinity is something that you always enjoy seeing depicted in storytelling Mm -hmm. because culture has such a hard time doing it. And something that you have said to me before is how much difficulty you have confronting the idea of male loneliness. Oh my God, I can't do this right now. It's 11 o'clock at night. (laughs) And like David is clearly lonely. Yeah. I'm wondering how much of that for you has to do with shifting concerns about with your dad whether he Mm. is like you've talked about how sometimes he's such an extrovert and he wants to be around people all the time and sometimes you're worried that he's just by himself yeah um do you think that's where that oh my god this is making me nauseous (laughs) i i know that my like strange anxiety around male loneliness predates my parents divorce Mm -hmm. but it hasn't helped Mm, yeah Okay. I don't know where it comes from, truly, but it it rattles me. Oh yeah, I I like I'm envisioning an old woman in a room, and I'm envisioning an old man in a room, and like the man is making me real sad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know why. Prepare for some amazing flashback sequences mm. throughout the rest of this Excellent. series. Um, last thing. Okay. You had a very strong reaction to the ads for the funeral products. Ugh. That was, yeah. Tell me, tell me, I, I'm, spoiler alert, as you accurately predicted, 
those are only in the pilot. I think they very quickly realized that's not the voice of the show. We're not going to do that anymore. And I think it's interesting whenever you watch the first episode of something that became a classic. Yeah. There's always something at the beginning that gets done away with very quickly in The Sopranos. For example, it's Tony doing voiceover when we see Mm. other scenes in the show. I think... So I guess my question is, what about it felt so wrong to you? Because I think the strength of this show is how instantaneously it has such a clear, relatable voice, as we've been talking about. Right. So what is it about the ads that doesn't fit? Because it's not a human voice. Mm. Because that's not how we talk to each other. And it gives death this squeaky clean appearance, which it isn't Mm -hmm. ever. My mom's boyfriend embalms people. It's like the messiest fucking... Yeah. And it's like our attempt to make it clean and our attempt to control it and how we are not in control. But then it did kind of link into when David and Nate are fighting and David is like, this is the business. I think it's death and capitalism, too. You know, it's like we make money off of dead people. And that's kind of fucked up. We take money from mm -hmm. people at their most vulnerable moment. I agree with you completely. I know you do. I think the show was, it was already so innately and compellingly human right out of the gate Mm -hmm. that those ads felt like they're from another world. Um, And I think they make the point that you're describing about, you know, the commentary on how fucked up it is that this is a capitalistic enterprise. Mm -hmm. So clearly, with just that one scene at the end where the guy who runs the other funeral company comes up to David I know. and tries to get him to sell the business at his father's funeral. Yeah. Excuse me, excuse me Mr. Fisher, sir. If I could just get a moment of your time. What? I'm from Corona Service International. I'd like to talk to you about the advantages of joining our family of death care facilities. I don't believe this. Sir, if you just hear me out, We're not see selling, that- but get the fuck out of here. We wouldn't change the name of the business. And of course, we would retain you as a salaried manager. Look, I really want to hit somebody right now, and it might as well be you. I'll call you when you've had some time to recover from your loss. All we needed was that scene to convey how messed up it is. And it was much more effective because the resolution of that scene was David having a very human moment where yeah. he almost snaps and hits the guy. Yeah. So it, it came to us through character instead of through this device of these fake ads. Totally. Okay, Adrian Bain. Please let me go to bed. I'm going to let you have a good night's sleep. That's a fucked up joke, and I regret making it. Yes. Hello, Adrian Bain. Sam Dingman. Did you know, Adrian Bain, that we forgot to record an outro for the first episode of our Six Feet Under podcast? Oh, no. Did you know that that's what's happening right now? Like I'm being recorded right now? Yes. Fuck New York's one-party consent recording law. Um, I would argue God bless it because it is what allows <laughs> an astonishing amount of hard-hitting investigative work like this to take place. Wow. I feel duped and um, not going to prepare you the meal that I had planned to today. So I will accept that punishment in exchange for a pithy and insightful 
bit of outro banter. When do you need this by? Because I'm kind of in the middle of... Like, what kind of... All you have to do is say your name and that you would like people to listen to your other podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, thanks for listening to mine and Sam rants, unfinished ideas, and feelings about Fisher Family Ghosts. You can also check out my other podcast, Strangers Abroad, if you are itching to travel, need to mollify that with some travel stories. That's what Strangers Abroad is all about. Sam and I just literally can't stop making podcasts. It's kind of an issue. So (laughs) we're always looking for validation. So please leave a review, rate us. And if you want to hear some non-fictional stories about families haunted by ghosts from the past, please check out my other show, Family Ghosts. We have three seasons out already, and our brand new fourth season will be released on January 14th. If you would like to offer any thoughts on what you have heard on this, our first episode, you can send them to ffg at walt.fm. You can also send guesses as to what the meal Adrian was going to make for me might have been. You're going hungry tonight. (laughs) I feel bombarded. (laughs) 